Now, Lent is a season leading up to resurrection. It began on Wednesday. It's 40 days, so it's a fairly long season. And Lent is a time for us to reflect. It's a time for us, I feel like there's all these seasons in the church calendar, an opportunity for us to slow down, which if you're anything like me, slowing down, it sounds great in practice, in, like as an ideal, but then once you get into the minutia of life and you realize how much you have going on, you recognize how difficult it is to actually slow down. But I like the idea of it, and so every single year I do try to slow down during Lent. I try to reflect a little bit more, and Lent really, it's kind of an uncomfortable season, though, because who likes to think about death? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I don't like to dwell on death or on the darkness that I carry within me, uh, because that's what Lent is all about. We focus on death. We focus on sin. We focus on the frailty of our humanity and we like to be puffed up. We like to be told about our greatness. There's an ancient rabbi who once said that uh, he has two pieces of paper, one on each side, or one on each pocket. On one side, the paper says, remember, you are great. And then on the other side, the piece of paper says, remember, you are but dust. And we need both of those reminders. Sometimes we need to be reminded, yeah, you possess greatness within you. The Spirit of God has birthed life within you and you carry that spirit with you wherever you go and we need to hear that story we need that message but then sometimes we do need to hear the message remember you're but dust you're from the dust and you shall return to the dust well lent and i can already see we're going to have half the number of people here next week uh, because once you hear exactly what lent is all about you're like i don't want to do that i'll come back for resurrection but lent eh. I think I'm going to skip out on a couple of weeks because we're reminded of our frailty. And for this Lent season, where there's six Sundays before we get to resurrection, I have a series called Letting Go. And I gave this series a couple of years ago. I mentioned this last week. I gave this series Letting Go a couple of years ago. But since then, I've realized that there are more, because Lent is always six weeks, six Sundays, there are more than six things to let go of. So this is Letting Go Part 2 with six whole different new things to let go of. So if you let go of those six things, I think it was two years ago, we'll get ready because I'm going to give you a whole bunch of other things to let go of. And here was the basis for this series two years ago, and it still serves as the basis for our series this year. It's from a book I read called Freeing Jesus by Diana Butler Bass. She says, I understood how my life had been marked by giving up and letting go. And that each release, whether purposeful or unwelcome, because there are some things we let go of intentionally. We do it because we know it's good for us. It might be painful in the moment, but we know it's going to lead us somewhere good. But then we also have those unwelcome moments of letting go. The tragedy that strikes. The hardships that we go through. The sickness. The losses that force us to let go, even though we're not quite ready to let go. You ever been there before? Something gets ripped from you, and you just, you weren't ready for it. And so what she has understood, and 
I mean, I can relate to this. Can anyone else relate to this? Your entire life has been a whole bunch of letting goes that are purposeful or unwelcome. But every single release, every time, it's created something new. Because that's how it works. You let go of something. A season in your life dies. It ends. There's a loss. And a whole new world is birthed for you. Now, sometimes that's really not a good thing. Sometimes, especially in the beginning, it, it feels awkward and a bit wonky and you have sea legs as you're trying to figure out what this new world looks like. I mean, think about someone who has been with their spouse for 40 years and all of a sudden their spouse dies and they're left trying to pick up the pieces of it. It's really difficult to find your footing in those moments after the letting go. What does this feel like? What's this new reality for me? Now, that is what Lent is all about. The death of something so that we can receive new life. In order to receive resurrection, in order to get to resurrection, well, there has to be a death. You can't get to resurrection without going through a season of death. And it's painful. It hurts. But you can't get to the end You can't get to the resurrection, the rising from the grave. You can't get to the new life until you go through that death. So for Lent, it's this season of purging, letting go all for the purpose of experiencing something new. And if you're like me, you long for the new. There's probably some things in your life right now, they're not going the way in which you desire for them to go. Maybe there's some things that you're holding on to. You know they're not the best for you, but you simply, you you just can't let go of them. Lent is the time for us to reflect on what those things are that we're holding on to so that we might be offered the power to let go of them so that we can receive something new. Or possibly for you, maybe this season of Lent is being aware of what you have let go of. Maybe maybe there's been some unwelcome letting goes over the past couple of months, or maybe even the past couple of years, and you haven't acknowledged the reality of what you have let go of, or what you have been forced to let go of. Lent is a time for us, again, slow down. I know it's difficult, but for us to reflect, okay, what what have I lost? What's this space, this empty space that I have within me that God desires to fill? with something good and something new and something with the potential to bring resurrection to your soul. So Lent is this season. We move from death to resurrection. The next six weeks, we're in the death, but we know how it ends, which isn't always a good thing when you know the ending because you kind of know how the story is going to end, which sometimes keeps you at arm's length from the feelings that come up whenever we talk about Lent and death. I mean, think about the first disciples of Jesus. They didn't know how the story was going to end. Think about the heartache that they experienced at the death of Jesus. See, we know the ending of it, but think about the disciples. So for these next six weeks, let's try to forget the ending for a moment. I know you're not told to do that in church. I get it. I know. But let's try to forget the ending for a minute, and let's really enter into this season. 
And let's allow the Spirit to reveal to each of us, are there any things that we have been holding onto and they are preventing us from experiencing resurrection? And then our prayer together, our collective prayer will be that we are given the strength to let go of those things. Now this morning, the first sermon in this series is titled, Letting Go of Ego. Now, let me define ego for you. And this definition comes from Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. Has anyone ever read this book before? Classic, nice. I love anything by Ryan Holiday. Here's what he says about ego. Ego is an unhealthy belief in our own importance. Does anyone else, uh, have you ever experienced this? I see a few people like, yeah, everyone else is like, no. Don't look at me. Uh, It's arrogance, self-centered ambition. It's that petulant child inside every person, the one that chooses getting his or her way over anything or anyone else. Ego is the need to be better than, more than, recognized for, far past any reasonable utility. That is ego. It's the sense of superiority and certainty that exceeds the bounds of confidence and talent. So when I talk about letting go of ego, this is what I'm talking about. That need we have to be better than others, better than him, better than her, trying to prove ourselves, trying to uh, offer this sense of superiority to others. And in order to talk about ego, here's who I want to talk about this morning. Who recognizes who this person or character is? Joseph. This is a story that takes place thousands of years ago in All the way early, early on in the Bible, Genesis chapter 37 to 50 is Joseph's story. And Joseph, when we meet him, he is a spoiled brat. There's no other way of putting it. Here's a little background on Joseph. He's born to Jacob, also known as, bonus points, Israel. And he is born to Jacob's favorite wife. In the world at this time, it's regressive. I understand it. We have moved far beyond this. We have to enter into a culture that took place thousands and thousands of years ago. So we have to just kind of put this to the side. We can t- that's a whole other issue altogether. I get it. But Jacob has multiple wives. He has a favorite wife. Her name is Rachel. She can't get pregnant. Eventually, she does. But after... All of his other wives have given birth, and so now Jacob is ecstatic over the fact that Rachel has given birth to a son who is Joseph, which is why he is the favored child. Joseph has 11 brothers, one sister. Now, Joseph's brother, Benjamin, is the second child born to Rachel, and Rachel dies during childbirth. Jacob is grieving because he has lost his favorite wife. Joseph obviously is grieving because he has lost his mother. But throughout this story, when when it begins, we find that Joseph is the favored child. Some of you know exactly what it feels like to be the favored child in your home, and some of you know what it feels like to have another sibling who is the favored child in the home. And sibling rivalry is on full display in this story. Now, here's how it begins. Here's how Joseph's story begins. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. How does Joseph's story begin? He's telling on his brothers. <laughs> He's giving a bad report about his siblings. Remember, he's the favored child. They already don't like him. And now he's going and telling on his brothers to his daddy. And here's how Joseph is described. He's a young man of 17, which some of the ancient rabbis, they were quite puzzled over this. They said, well, why are we told that he is 17 years old if we're already told that he's a young man? It's almost like they're highlighting this point for us. And here's how one rabbi decided to understand this. He said he was 17 years old, yet the text says he was a youth. But this means, why did he have to go twice? Why do we have to say he's a young man and he's 17? It means that he did deeds of youthful foolishness. When we first meet Joseph, he is a child, might we say, a young man of youthful foolishness. Joseph is a wisdom story. It actually parallels ancient Egyptian wisdom stories. Joseph is a story about how to grow in wisdom. When we first meet Joseph, he has absolutely no wisdom. He's the favored child, and he's still telling on his brothers, which makes them ever more angry at him. And we're told he is a man or a young man who is doing deeds of youthful foolishness, which then raises a question for all of us here this morning. Can you relate? Have you ever done deeds of youthful foolishness? Do you still do deeds of youthful foolishness? This reminds me of a story. And in order to tell this story, I have to show you a picture of the car that our family had when I was in high school. I am still in therapy over this car today. Years and years of therapy. We had this car, me and my sister, we were so embarrassed about this car that whenever our parents would drop us off somewhere, we said, please, two blocks away from where we have to go, do not let our friends see you drop us off in this car. And if ever we would pass by friends, we would get as low as we possibly could in those seats because we did not want anyone else to see us in this car. When I was about 14 or 15 years old, my grandmother from North Carolina was up to visit us for the week. We woke up early, or I woke up early on a Saturday morning. My grandmother was up early on a Saturday morning. Everyone else was still sleeping in the house. My grandmother asks, would you like to make pancakes this morning? To which I reply, as any 14-year-old would, well, of course, let's make some pancakes. We look around. There is no pancake mix in the house. We have to go to the grocery store early on a Saturday morning while everyone else is still asleep. I tell my grandmother, hey, why don't I go pull this car up for you, and then you can drive to the grocery store. She asks the question, can you drive? To which I reply, of course I know how to drive, not knowing at all how to drive. Now, this car, it was parked in our neighbor's driveway. 
Our neighbor was an elderly widow, and she liked the idea of having cars parked in the driveway because it just made her feel a little more secure. Uh, that way, if anyone was looking out, they would say, oh, there's a bunch of cars here. There must be people at home. It didn't look like the house was empty. So our driveway was parallel to her driveway, and at the back of her driveway was a carport. Now, a carport, carport was a, it was like a three-walled structure. There were walls on the side, and then there was a roof as well in order to keep all the elements out. If it rained or if it snowed, it would keep the cars dry which meant that there was no front to this and there was no back to this. The carport was parked about, or was located probably about five to seven feet from her house at the end of the driveway away from the street. My grandmother gives me the keys to this car. I walk across our driveway down my neighbor's driveway. I proceed to open the car door and then turn the key because I can figure that part out. I know how to put a key in ignition and then turn it. The car starts, and then I'm at a loss for what to do. Here I am, 14 years old, sitting here. My grandmother is waiting at the end of the driveway for me to pull the car up for her. And I'm left wondering, all right, I've seen my parents do this before. I'm sure I can figure this out. Now, there was one of those uh, shift, col uh, the, the shift was on the column right up here. It wasn't like down here. And it had a whole bunch of letters. So I, I saw my, I've seen my parents do this before. So I just start moving that column a little bit. And as I do this, the car starts to move a little bit. Now, the reason why the car starts to move is because it was in this divot because the car was parked there constantly. And so the weight of this behemoth, the weight of this thing, it created a divot in the driveway where we parked it every single night. Now, I didn't know in which direction or which gear I had moved the car in, but I know that the car was starting to move a little bit, and I began to get freaked out. So I did what any of us would do in this situation. I took my foot, and I slammed it down as hard as I possibly could at those pedals that were on the floor there because I've seen my parents do this before as well. Well, I missed the brake and I hit the gas. The car was in reverse. I peel out from under the carport and go flying backwards right into my neighbor's house. No one wakes up. I see my grandmother running down the driveway. Now, here's the thing about this car. It dented, the, it dented the house, but it did not even dent the car. <laughs> Deeds of youthful foolishness. Have you ever been there before? Not exercising wisdom. The most embarrassing part of this was that I had to go knock on my neighbor's door and be like, hey, I just ran into your house. It's like, I didn't hear anything. Yeah, deeds of youthful foolishness. We have all been there. This is where Joseph is when we begin the story. Wisdom is at a zero or maybe a negative. And yet Joseph begins to grow in wisdom ever so slowly. Let's continue the story of Joseph. 
Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Imagine the dinner table every single night. Brutal. So the brothers already dislike Joseph. We're told they strongly dislike him. They actually hate him. Joseph then has a dream. Here's the dream. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. As if it wasn't bad enough already. Here's the dream he decides to tell them. Tell me if this is an act of wisdom or not. Hey, guys, everyone, gather around. I just had a dream, and I want you all to know about this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Is this going to win him points with his brother? Is this a deed of youthful foolishness? Is this a lack of wisdom? His brother said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him even more than they already did because of this dream and what he had said. Now, Joseph doesn't know when to stop. He has another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Hey, listen, I had another dream. Guys, gather around. This one's even better than the first one. This time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. How many brothers does he have? They were all bowing down to me. How do you think this went over with his brothers? They hated him even more than before. So they come up with this plan where they are going to, uh, they rip his ornate robe from his back. They throw him into a pit and half the brothers want to kill him. The other half feel bad and they just want to kind of get rid of him. So ultimately what they decide is, well, you can see here, I had this slide, yeah, younger Joseph, he's arrogant, he's boastful, prideful, impulsive, reckless, he's ego-driven, he hasn't learned to let go of his ego, which is kind of like Luke Skywalker when he's a, trying to become a Jedi Knight, where he goes, he visits Yoda, the Dagobah system, and he thinks that he is already this great, powerful Jedi, but then he sees this little scrawny green man in front of him, and he's like, this guy is beneath me. I'm more powerful than him. This whole situation, my ex-wing's in a swamp. Like this whole, you ever felt like that where the situation that you're in is beneath you? You're like, I'm better than this. And that's how Joseph is feeling. He's like, what am I doing here with these loser brothers? And so he's arrogant. He's I mean, we've all been there before. Now, Joseph's story continues. He's thrown into this pit. Ultimately, he is sold to traitors. He ends up in Egypt where he then serves in the house of an Egyptian official. If you know this story, you know that serving in the house of this official named Potiphar does not go well for him because Potiphar's wife, she has the hots for Joseph, and she is constantly trying to seduce him, but Joseph will have none of it. But he still gets caught in a really tricky situation where there's one day he's alone with Potiphar's wife. She's trying to seduce him. He goes and runs away, but she grabs his cloak and as he's running away, she has his cloak. What do you think he's wearing as he runs out of the house? Nothing. How does this look for Joseph? Hey, it's the Hebrew slave that is with my wife. He's naked running out of the house, and now she's telling everyone that he tried to seduce me? Yeah, Joseph then gets thrown into prison. 
He meets in prison Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker because they did Pharaoh wrong. And if you're the Pharaoh, you can throw anyone you don't like into prison. And so he doesn't like his cupbearer. He doesn't like his baker. Throws him in jail. They have dreams. See, this whole thing is about dreams. Joseph's story, it's all about dreams. While in prison, these guys have dreams. They tell them to Joseph. He interprets the dreams. And they said, hey, don't worry. We're going to remember you to Pharaoh because we're getting out of prison. We're going to remember that you interpreted our dreams. So we'll tell Pharaoh, hey, why don't you let this guy out? Why don't you free him? He's actually a really good guy, but he's forgotten, which is what normally happens. Because when everything is going your way, you forget the little people because you're kind of focused on yourself. So Joseph is forgotten. He's left in jail for two more years, but then Pharaoh has a dream. It's these, he has two weird dreams about cows and about grain, which like, was he, was he visiting McDonald's the night before? Like he has this dream about seven well-fed cows and then seven gaunt cows. Then he has a dream about seven really vibrant stalks of grain and then seven gaunt stalks of grain. Pharaoh has no idea how to interpret this dream, what it means. But then all of a sudden the cupbearer remembers Joseph, tells Pharaoh, hey, I got the guy for you. I got the guy for you who can interpret this dream. So then as we continue his story in Genesis 41, we're told, Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. This is the whole turning point of Joseph's story. This is the point in the story when we see whether Joseph has really learned his lesson. And the phrase, the most important phrase, who can guess the most important phrase in this verse? Guarantee you, you're not going to get it. Changed his clothes. All right, I was wrong. I like it. Because changed his clothes, this was a constant factor in Joseph's misfortunes. Think about the beginning of the story. He was given a robe. In other words, he was given a blessing. But at this point in the story, he didn't have the character nor the wisdom to sustain his blessing. See, you all have gifts. You all have God-given talents. You all possess power within you. The question raised by the story of Joseph is, will we exercise those gifts and talents that God has given us with wisdom, with character, Or will we, like Joseph, make our gifts and our talents all about ourselves? Will we make it about our ego, asserting ourselves through the gifts and the talents that we have been given? Joseph had to learn the hard way. Something is placed upon him in the beginning of his story. But then he's humbled because As we looked at the story, he's then stripped of that robe, which is a humbling experience. It's a removal, almost, you could say, of that blessing. And then when he's with Potiphar's wife, again, he is stripped of that cloak as if things couldn't get any worse for him. He keeps going lower and lower. He's at the height in the beginning. He's at the top. And then he ever so slowly progresses lower and lower until he ends up in prison for many years. So when we get here to this part in the story, 
you're probably thinking, because you're an astute reader of scripture, you're probably like, oh my goodness, could things get any worse for Joseph? Because every single time there's a clothing change, it's as if things go very, very poorly for him. So now that there's another clothing change and he's going to be brought before Pharaoh, which if you are reading this story thousands of years ago, you know Egypt, they're really not the best people in the story. Because you know all about the exodus and the years of slavery that the Israelites were held in Egypt. So now that Joseph is being brought before the mighty leader of Egypt and there's another clothing change, you're like, oh my goodness, could it get any worse for this poor poor guy? What's happening here is Joseph is given another chance because clothes were removed, but then he was given new clothes to present himself before Pharaoh. So yes, there was a removal of his prison garb, but now there was a placing on of presentable clothes for him to go in front of Pharaoh with. It's a placing on of clothes, which is telling us, hey, here's another chance for Joseph. Will he get it right this time? Has he learned his lesson? And here's what happens. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Here's Joseph's response. I can't do it. It's not me, Joseph replied. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is a humbled man. He hasn't heard the dream yet. Pharaoh has not given him the dream. He says, I I can't do it, but I trust that God will be able to interpret this dream for you. Joseph has learned to trust in God. All of his experiences, everything he's been through, all those moments when it was crashing down in front of him, what we're constantly told throughout Genesis, God was with him. God was with him. Now, Joseph could have looked at all those misfortunes and could have said, well, Clearly, God is not with me because here I am away from my family in Egypt. Now I'm being falsely accused of something. Now I'm being thrown in prison. But Joseph, he had the awareness to know that God was still traveling with him. And now we get to this point in the story, and he has now learned the source of true wisdom. It's not, his, not himself. It's not him interpreting the dreams and asserting the meaning of the dreams to others, kind of putting it in their faces, right? Did he have to go and tell his brothers those dreams? No, he could have kept them to himself. He hadn't learned to keep his mouth shut yet. Yet here we are, I, I can't do it. But I trust that God will be able to offer the interpretation to Pharaoh. This is a humbled man. This is a man whose misfortunes have helped him grow in wisdom. And unfortunately, that's typically how it works. We learn the best from things that don't go our way, from things that are difficult and painful. I wish it wasn't true, but up until now in my life, uh, that's pretty much how it's gone for me. I have learned the most through all the hardship and pain that I have been through. And sometimes I wish it were different, 
sometimes I wish that I hadn't been through as much pain and hardship as I've been through. But looking back, it's what I really wanted any other way because I've grown through those experiences. And we all have a choice in the matter. We can choose to allow those moments to be times of growth or we can become bitter through those moments. Joseph chose to be better, to allow his moments of pain to be transformational in a good and healing way. See, gone is this ego that we saw displayed in Joseph's younger self. It wasn't, oh, sure, I'm your man. I can do it. If you let me out of prison, well, then I will give you the answer. No, 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 no. It was, hey, whatever happens, I'm going to continue trusting God because he's carried me this far, this far. And I guarantee you that God will continue carrying me one step at a time. Now, how did this transformation take place? This is the stuff that you come here for on a Sunday because my guess is that you, like Joseph, want to leave your ego behind. You want to grow in wisdom. So how did this transformation happen for Joseph and how can it happen for us? Four ways. First, Joseph allowed his suffering to transform him, transform him for the better. We talked about this. Egypt and its people, they were a source of Joseph's pain. He was unfairly imprisoned. He had been kind of like a, a slave, a lower-class servant in an official's home. Yet, Joseph did not choose to inflict pain on Egypt. Here's what we're told. After he hears a Pharaoh's dream, now, this is the advice that he gives to Pharaoh. Now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. Put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Because what Joseph says the dream's about, there's going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. So, Pharaoh... Prepare for the famine now during these seven years of abundance. This is what he's telling Pharaoh. Put a wise and discerning man in charge. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming, store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Joseph could have chosen to misinterpret the dream for Pharaoh. He could have told Pharaoh, hey, you know what? Everything's going to be great. Use it all up in the next seven years because the next seven years are going to be even better. He could have said, hey, you know what? Seven years, the big cow that you saw, it's about live these great seven years and then things are going to get back to normal, which would have ruined Egypt and its people. Yet Joseph does not choose to do this. Instead, he rightly interprets the dream so that Egypt can flourish, so that Egypt can survive. Which, if you think about what comes next in the story, you're probably wondering, wait a second, why did he choose to allow Egypt to survive? Because they are going to be an even greater source of hardship for the Israelites. Because the next season is slavery for the Israelites in Egypt. Yet, Joseph does not choose to inflict pain upon Egypt. Instead, he chooses to bless them through his gift and through what God has revealed to him. So the first way that we grow in wisdom 
is we allow our suffering to transform us for the better. Here's the second way. Joseph put the good of others ahead of his need for power, authority, prestige. He wasn't making the dream about himself like he did earlier in his life. First two dreams with his brothers, they were all about him. Notice, when he told Pharaoh, he said, hey, put a wise and discerning man in charge. It wasn't, hey, if you put me in charge, I'll figure the whole thing out for you. He wasn't pointing to himself. Again, he was trusting that God would carry him through whatever happened next. Whatever Pharaoh decided, he wasn't, hey, I'm your man right here. I can interpret this dream, so you should put me in charge. No, no, no. It was do what's best for the country. Do what's best for the good of the people. There's no ego here in Joseph. He's putting others before himself, which if you know the story of Jesus, which my guess is that's why many of you are here this morning, because you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or you came with someone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, and you want to know what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus, we have this verse in Philippians. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In your relationships with each other, how are you to live? By serving the needs of others. By thinking about what others need. What will be good for other people? Now, it doesn't mean to just be a doormat. That's a whole other sermon altogether. I understand this, but life shouldn't just all be about ourselves and getting as much as we can for ourselves. We're to serve one another. This is what Joseph did with this dream. He was serving the people of Egypt. It was no longer simply about himself as it was earlier in the story. So if you want to grow in wisdom... Look for people to serve. Look for ways to serve those around you. I guarantee you, your life will begin to look differently. And then here's the third way he grew in wisdom. Joseph was faithful to what was in front of him in each moment. Here's what happened when he was in prison. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, a phrase we hear all throughout the story. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Joseph didn't look at his time in prison and say, well, this is all, I'm I'm better than this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be here. But rather, he looked at that time in prison as an opportunity to serve to use his gifts, to use his talents. There's no moment in life that's beneath us. It's all a training ground. It's all an opportunity for us to be faithful in the moments we find ourselves. So I don't know what opportunities are in front of you right now. I don't know what you have going on in your life, where you have positions of authority or influence or power. But every single moment is an opportunity 
to serve and to use your God-given gifts in a way that blesses others. And then here's the fourth way. Joseph saw his entire life as a gift. He had a heart of gratitude. Here's what happens. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, and he named his firstborn Manasseh, and he said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. He was thankful to God for his first son. He was grateful the fact that he had been granted a son. And then the second son, he named Ephraim, and he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. These are names of gratitude. Joseph saw his whole life as a gift, and that kept his heart soft. I say this often, but what you look for in life is what you will find. You look for reasons to be grateful, to be thankful, you'll find those reasons. You look for reasons to be bitter, to be angry, you'll find those reasons, but your heart will suffer. You look for reasons why you don't deserve what you're going through, your heart's going to shrivel up. You look for the moments to be grateful, however small they might be. That's what Joseph did all throughout his life. And his heart grew larger and larger. I guarantee you, you look for reasons to be grateful, your heart will grow larger by the day. So those are four ways to let go of your ego. Let go of your ego. What? Let go of your ego and to grow in wisdom and to continue allowing God to transform you into the person you have been created to be.